Amen. My sixth grade teacher was a man named Mr. Townsend. I remember him well. Um, Honestly, he might have been the um, grumpiest teacher I've ever had. I believe he has long since gone to heaven, so I'm okay saying that. But we were assigned a story to write in sixth grade, and it would be my first venture into, and it was my first major literary fiction work. I wrote my paper, uh, a deep study of a high school basketball player who was the star of his team, and he was going to uh, play in the, the championship game. And that afternoon, his brother was in a serious injury, a car accident, and a serious injury, and had to get immediate surgery. And so, Jack, this, this ball player, and his family were at the hospital. And so, we had this scenario where this guy is not able to get to the game and chooses to be with his brother and goes to the surgery and is there and his brother recovers and it's obvious he's, on a, he's, he's going to be on a, on a good track. And so the ball player hustles over to the game and the team is way behind. It's, it's in the second half and he plays valiantly, but it, it isn't enough to overcome the deficit they've experienced and his team tragically loses And so you have this, in my opinion, Shakespeare at his best, a tragedy with the highest portrayals of love, loyalty, loss. And I waited with bated breath for the paper to come back with Mr. Townsend because he always wrote comments and uh, my letter grade. And I got my first fiction work back with this C on it. And then his one comment was this. Real life is not all neat and happy like this. I was astonished. Happy? He lost the game. I mean, this was, a, this was tragic. And I concluded that the school had somehow hired a grouch who hated basketball to be my English teacher. But looking back, I did realize in years to come that Mr. Townsend probably had some of his own stuff behind his comments. His demeanor in class during the year probably did reflect a man in pain with many sorrows. I don't know. I didn't know the cues at the time. I really didn't until looking back years later think about it. Maybe he had lost someone precious to him. Maybe he had just felt some real disappointments in life experience. But to him, real life is not all neat and happy like this. And his view, of course, is not uncommon. Life is hard. I read a quote recently by actress Laura Dern, who has starred in a number of films and and a number of uh, sitcom TV shows, And she said, I'm someone who feels extremely depressed by a happy Hollywood ending because it is not the way life goes. Life is hard. And there will be hard things in it for all of you. The hardest will come when it is the result of your own failures, where you feel like you are reaping the fruit of your own misses. And every counselor knows that everybody that comes with their own stuff and is being confronted with their own problems and their own failures and their own 
screw-ups desperately needs to hear hope. The presence of the living God assures us that hope is real. That lives can be changed, that even the most self-absorbed, destructive, and empty lives can have a wonderful ending. And this morning I want to talk about a guy whose life exudes that reality. He is to me the greatest example in the Bible as exhibit A evidencing God is a God of grace. So I'd like to look at this guy, Manasseh, king in Judah. His father was a godly king, Hezekiah. We looked at him last time. For some reason, Manasseh chose an entirely different lifestyle. It is the story that a bad beginning does not guarantee a bad ending. Judah at this time was the center of spirituality and God's work on earth. The nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes of the Israelites, had already been conquered and obliterated by the Assyrians. And this man, Manasseh, is a man who made some terrible, terrible, terrible choices. But a bad ending, a bad beginning does not guarantee a bad ending. I'd like to read these sobering words about his reign in verse 1 through 10 of chapter 33 in Second Chronicles. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Himon, practiced sorcery, divination, and wishcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I command them concerning the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses." But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. I mean, this is a man who had a horrendous start. I'd like to just highlight that for a moment Manasseh had a bad start. We see that in verses 1 through 10. The trajectory of his life and reign reflected that awful start in his life and reign. He was guilty of leading the nation into idolatry. 
Verse 3 says he rebuilt the high places. These were these centers of, of pagan worship that were brought in from the surrounding nations into Jerusalem. In verse 3, he worshipped the stars and the planets and the moon. In verses 4 and 5, he built altars to, to those uh, very uh, entities. In, it says in both courts, which means the, the outer court where they offered the sacrifices, and even into the very most holy of holy places, Excuse me, Manasseh brought these, these pagan gods and, and replaced God's altar with pagan altars. Replaced uh, the candlestick and, and the table of showbread and the altar of incense with, with statutes to other gods. It was just an amazing sacrilege. He took God's temple and he made it a place to the gods that God had had the people uh, conquer. He led the nation into sexual perversion. Basically, the various worship experiences that are defined here throughout the Old Testament are all identified with sexual perverted practices. The high places, the groves, the Asherah poles are all involved in that practice. It was all part of the, the pagan worship. He led them into satanic worship. We read these in these verses. They used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. But most horrifying and vile of the actions of, Messiah, of Manasseh that ultimately grew out of these, these, these embracing of these pagan religions was the fact that he was responsible for the slaughter of innocent blood. In verse 6, it says, And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. This is a literal statement. The worship of Moloch, which was a, a, a premier god of uh, the Edomites, uh, the worship of Chemosh, which was a premier god of multiple gods, both were famous for the fact that the way you could most express your devotion to a pagan god was to offer your own children as sacrifice upon the altar. He did that. And the son that will eventually reign was a son that was born very late in his life, uh, in his probably his mid-50s, because he had killed his other boys. It's just an astonishing story of an individual. It is why we read in the parallel passage in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16, he shed much innocent blood. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet that, that Jesus himself quoted the most, the most prominent, most um, influential of all of the prophets of, of Israel, Isaiah actually served as the counselor to five different Judean kings, uh, kings of Judah, he was martyred during the time of Manasseh's reign. And tradition has it that he was literally um, tied, his limbs, his arms, and his legs were tied by rope to horses, and they were set out in different directions, and he was pulled apart. This is a, a man who did horrible things, and particularly did horrible things to the nation that God had placed his eye on. 
This remarkable statement is made in verse 9. He was guilty of more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before Israel. Now, I want to just think of what that means. What were these nations that he's talking about? And I'm not going to get into the detailed practices that they were involved in. But I want to, I want to just get the, the weight of this statement. Because if you remember in the history of Israel... One of the great questions that all of us have in looking at the Old Testament is why when the people of Israel moved into the land of Canaan, did God tell them to to wipe out certain groups and and, and whole city-states and people were literally forced to leave their homes and not stay in the land, the Canaanites and and the Amorites. And God gives us some clues in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, back in Genesis chapter 15, He's talking to Abraham. Now this is prior to the people of Israel going into slavery in Egypt. Abraham's now living in the land, and God makes this prophetic statement. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for 400 years. Your descendants are going to go into Egypt. That's what he's saying, for 400 years. And he says, but afterwards... They will come out with great possessions. And they will come back here to this land. And he says, we're not, and and, and we're going to wait, and they're not going to come and vanquish the land for all that time. And he makes this explanation. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He says, I'm going to take over this land. There's going to come a time when the sin of the people of the land is going to is going to require judgment. But it's not now. And it's not going to be for four centuries. Four centuries later, we come, and in the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are about to go into the land and to conquer it. And God says this to them, When you go in, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. There should be no one who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or or is a sorcerer or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or anyone who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And it's because of these abominations, this is Deuteronomy 18, because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You will be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. He says, look, The sin of these people has been building for centuries. And rather than repenting, and rather than changing, and and rather than restraining, their evil has just gotten more, and it's heaped upon heaped, and through these terrible experiences, they're they're offering their own children in the fire, and they they are doing these uh, satanic rituals in every sense. This is a people, by anyone's evaluation, who are living in abject, horrid, evil and so he says don't feel guilt for driving them out now we fast forward the period of the judges comes the period of the beginning of the of the kingdom of israel comes in this same land where israel has now become the conqueror, they have formed their own kingdom under Saul, and then under David, and then under uh, Solomon, and eventually the kingdom's divided into two groups, the northern and then the southern. 
And there is a guy in the southern kingdom who has basically replaced all of those practices in Jerusalem itself. The devil worship, the abuse of children, the, the, the selling them into uh, uh, the, the sacrificial offerings, all these things. And this is what Manasseh has brought and has restored to the nation. He did more to lead the nation away from Jehovah God and to violent, destructive idolatry than any other king. And he did it as an insider, as a person born into a godly home. The impact of his life and reign is that God brought judgment upon Judah, ultimately. We read this in 2 Kings. I'm going to tie all this together. 2 Kings 23, verse 26 and 27. It says this, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of His great wrath by which His anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I removed Israel and as I cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house which I said, my name shall be there. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Jerusalem is now doing the very things that I brought my people out of Egypt and allowed them to conquer this land, and now they've turned unto Manasseh. And he says, so I will not maintain this kingdom forever. And it would be just a couple of generations later that they will be vanquished and Jerusalem will go into what's called the battle. And we would expect no less. I mean, how would it be fair to God to judge the Amorites and Canaanites for these practices and not to judge the nation who have continued in them and do continue in them after Manasseh? But Manasseh was the human vehicle for implementing many of those practices. Now, you may be out there saying, you know, when you started talking in this message this morning, I was thinking this was going to be a very positive sermon. I mean, a bad beginning doesn't mean a bad ending. I mean, this sounds terrible, right? This is horrible. But Manasseh actually had a good finish. I'd like you to look at verse 11 and following, verse 12 and following. It says this, well, I'll start, I'll start at verse 10, actually. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. When it says here, he brought Manasseh up in verse 11, he captured Manasseh with hooks, and bound him with chains. He was put in shackles uh, in his arms, his legs. And, but when it says hooks, it actually is referring to a practice of, of Assyria. And this is said in the parallel passage, where they actually put a big hook in your nose, and that's how they dragged him. And he walked all the way to the Assyria. I mean, it was... A, it was a way of showing uh, disdain to the king. Manasseh was taken as a prisoner to Assyria. The whole city didn't fall at this time, but he did. And he was captured, I and mean, the whole nation didn't completely fall. But as he's going, 
Somewhere when he gets there, something happens inside of him. And it says he humbled himself greatly. Now I'll just land on this for a few, few moments. What does it mean he humbled himself greatly? Um, because terms are important, right? I mean, it's important to understand what does this, what is God saying he did? Does it mean that he, he, he saw, wow, um, Things are bad. I can't conquer the Assyrians on my own, so I'm going to ask for God's help. I mean, or, or I'm just saying, well, that didn't work, so I'll try it this way. I mean, it doesn't sound like what we're hoping for in this man. What does it mean he humbled himself greatly? Because I remember, I mean, words are important and definitions are important. I remember years ago when we were up in northern Michigan, and one of my sons, Timmy, was young, and he went to a Sunday school class at the local little church there, and they had some rough kids in the crowd, and... Uh, so this big kid came up to Timmy, and he said to him, uh, he said, do you want a piece of me? And Timmy said, that's disgusting. <laughs> he didn't know what it meant. Uh, so words are important. Terms are important. Concept. So what does it mean he humbled himself greatly? Well, the word humbled here is the word literally translated. It is it, the little, literal translation of to bow the knee. He yielded fully, wholeheartedly to God. He surrendered to God. He surrendered to God's view of himself. He surrendered God to God's assessment of him. He turned over the wheel of, 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 his, of his vehicle, of his life to God. He said, God, I, I see what I am. He cried out in the appalling reality of what he was, and he brought himself under God in every sense. And as he bowed the knee, here in the 46th year of a 55-year reign, God graced him with forgiveness. Now sometimes it's hard to tell when a person's life trajectory is reoriented. Sometimes it's hard to sell, tell in ourselves. When did, you know, I, I, when did I really begin? It's, it's like, uh, I was thinking about this recently, trying to think, um, I'm not sure why I was asking this question, but I thought, when does a cucumber become a pickle? Huh? Now you think about that the rest of the day. When is it a pickle and when is it a cucumber? Sometime there's a transition when the pickle, uh, when the cucumber has been in the, in the, 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 whatever it is, the juices, what is it, brine, long enough, thank you. Um, it turns to a pickle, but when? You know, the first hour, the first four hours, the first, I don't know how long it is, but anyway, it, it goes in a cucumber and you don't just go, whoop, cucumber, now it's a pickle. No, it's time. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of slow transitions in our life, right? But sometimes, like in the moment of regeneration, it's instantaneous. We may not be able to identify that moment, but there are also many of us that can say, that was the aha moment. I got it. This man had his aha moment sitting in a dirty jail in Assyria. And he humbled himself, and he was broken. And he who had rejected the God of his father, who, who must have so proudly and arrogantly been willing to, to bring in such debauchery to the, to the name of God, this man bowed the knee 
to the God he had mocked. Now, for many of us, I think our reaction to this is, this almost doesn't feel right. There's a, there's a Jewish um, tradition or fable about Manasseh. And the Jewish story is that the angels of God looked at Manasseh and they deliberately closed up the throne of God so Manasseh's prayers could not come to God. But they didn't know that God had a secret hole that would board in His throne that Manasseh's prayers of brokenness could come to him. Why would the angels do that in this fictitious story? Same reason we would say, it's just not right. This guy doesn't deserve it. He, if anybody deserved to bear the fruit presently, eternally in his life, it's this man. But that's not how God functions. The nature of His good finish is found in the fact that Manasseh finished well. He finished well with his calling. Verse 14-17 through 17 describe him going back now a humbled, broken man, full of grace, full of wonder for the God that he had disdained. And he began, it says, he took out the idols that he himself had put into the most holy place, and then the outer court, the holy place. And he began to to make changes. Now, he was not effective in turning the nation with him. But he did turn his life, and he spent the last nine years of his life. 84% of the years of his reign were wasted. But he used what he had. He finished well. He finished well with his family. The son of Manasseh, who became the heir after him, only reigned for a couple of years. He was not a godly man. However, his grandson, who was alive when he was still alive, we know by the reckoning of the years, was a man named Josiah. And I mentioned to you two weeks ago when I spoke, Josiah was the most godly king that ever reigned on the throne of Judah. To me, it's this amazing picture that God even allowed there to be good to come out of the the family of this man, the life of this man. He didn't see his son turn to God, but his grandson wholeheartedly followed Jesus. 2 Chronicles 34 is emphasizing the terrible things this man did, but it is also clearly saying He finished well by the grace of God. He didn't deserve it. Either did Saul. He didn't deserve to be graced by God. A man who was literally trying to destroy Christianity and to take the lives of Christians. But you can also put your name there. You didn't deserve it. Maybe you're here or you're listening online and God has been pointing out in your life or maybe you're very aware of it yourself. You have started very badly. There's a lot of your life that's just a a summary of regrets. 
This man's story is put in Scripture to say to us, he who begins badly can finish well. Finish well. Maybe today's the aha moment. Maybe today is, is the turning where your heart is humbled greatly. There's a whole board in the throne of God. A listening ear of a God of grace to you. It is why Micah, a contemporary of, of Manasseh, the prophet, said this in chapter 7 of his book. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of His inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. It's why a, good, a bad start does not guarantee a bad ending. It's all because of God. Lord, we look to You this morning. There's not a person listening today that hasn't had a bad start. We not, may not have been aware of it. We may not have been as conscious at just how much sin was the reality of our life experience and experimented our lives. But Lord, I'm guessing there are people listening to me speak this morning that are very aware that they have had a bad start. Lord, lead us to Christ. Lead us to the One that is the ultimate exhibit of a God who delights to show mercy. May we flee to Him today, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.